You know you're getting towards the end of the meeting when the pastor starts getting more and more excited and preaching before the service. <laughs> and I do the same thing back at home. I enjoy when we have folks come to preach at our church, but I always miss being in the pulpit myself, and then I start getting anxious and thinking about what I want to say. So, Well, we had a good day, and uh, Titus and I had a good time. We went down to the History Museum down in Raleigh, and uh, we spent a couple hours there, learned what a Tar Heel is. That was very interesting to us, and as it turns out, we ran into a woman who was there explaining that display um, who's from Pennsylvania, and so we were talking with her for a little while about our home state and small world, small world. So uh, turn in your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 17, and Titus caught a fish too today, so that was, that was good. The fish was a greedy little thing. The, the lure that he was using was almost as big as the fish that he caught. <clears throat> and when I sent a picture to my wife, she said, that, that fish is almost the same size as the lure. Yeah, he was either mad or greedy. I don't know which, but Titus got him. So Matthew chapter 17. And I want to direct your attention tonight to verse 14. And we're going to... Uh, we're going to read down to verse 21, and tonight I'd like to take a few minutes to speak to you about the confidence of the disciple. As we've talked about what it means to be a follower of Christ, to follow after Him and to seek His direction, to live in fellowship with the Lord and to walk with His priorities in mind. We've, we've seen that We do that together as an assembly, uh, as a group of believers. We are on this faith journey together, but it is a faith journey. And tonight we want to talk about the importance of our confidence and where we put our confidence. One of the things that Jesus was frequently doing during his earthly ministry, during the three years or so that he spent with the 12 disciples was he was, and you'll see this repeatedly, he was constantly stretching their faith. He was constantly putting them in situations that were outside of their ability to handle so that they would need to look to him and then he could provide the answer that they needed. And it happened over and over and over again. And over and over and over again, Jesus spoke to them about the importance of faith. Faith, trusting God in the trials that confront us, trusting God in the day-to-day disciplines, trusting God in the steps that we take. You know, it's no coincidence that this area of faith is an area where many of us struggle in our discipleship, in following Christ. We want to follow Christ. We want to do God's will But there are many times that God's will is taking us to a place that we don't understand. And we grapple with that. Okay, what am I supposed to do? How should I handle this situation? Many times we're confronted with situations where we're expected to trust God and His promises against all of the physical evidence that our senses can handle. 
It seems like things are a certain way, and yet we see from God's word that they're a different way, and we're confronted with a choice. Do I believe God, or do I believe me? And that's exactly what was going on here in Matthew chapter 17, as Jesus again was teaching his disciples about faith. It's significant that this event, this encounter, took place just as Jesus and Peter, James, and John were coming off the Mount of Transfiguration. So they had been up on the Mount. Peter, James, and John had seen that miraculous demonstration of Jesus' power. They came off the Mount, and immediately a crowd met them. And that's where we pick up in verse 14, Matthew chapter 17. The Bible says, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water, and I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. If you underline in your Bible, you might just underline that. Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. We think about the confidence that God wants us to have. We're told in several places in the scriptures that we as believers should walk by faith and not by sight. The walk of the believer, the following after Christ operates on the basis of faith. And without faith, Hebrews 11 says, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so faith is an area where we're constantly needing to confront our, our flesh and, and our desire to understand and to have firmly in our hands the situations. Have you noticed that we get really uncomfortable when things are out of our control. As long as we feel like we have it in control, it's fine. But it's when it goes out of our control, that's where we start to really panic. We start to really think, now what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And we start to, to worry. We start to exercise a lot of care. Notice here in this passage in Matthew 17 first of all, that there was a failure of the disciples' faith. Jesus came off the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and the multitude met them. The multitude was in a bit of a, of a tizzy, in a bit of a hubbub. And the reason was because that there had been a failure on the part of his disciples. There had been a, a young man that was brought to them with a problem, and the disciples couldn't help this young man and his father. We notice concerning the failure of their faith that Jesus was absent. Jesus wasn't there with the disciples. He was 
apart. He was up on the mountain. He was not physically present with them. And one thing I want to point out to you is that it was not surprising to Jesus that this took place. It was not surprising to Jesus that this would happen while he was apart from the disciples. In fact, I, I believe that this was calculated, that it was designed in this way so that the disciples could learn a very important lesson. Sometimes, because we know the Lord is not physically with us, we can't see him, we can't reach out and hold his hand, because he's not physically with us, there are times when we doubt his presence, when we doubt that he is near. And of course, we know that if you're his disciple, we know that he is near, because the Bible tells us clearly in Hebrews 13 and 5 that he will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So even though you can't reach out and hold his hand, you can't see him with your physical eyes. If you're a believer, he's with you. And yet there are times in our life when we feel as if he's not present. We feel as if we've been forsaken, as if God has left us alone. By the way, that's not an, un, that's not an unusual thing. Even the psalmist spoke about many times feeling as if God had forsaken him or as if God was far away. And we know that that's not necessarily true, but many times in our trials, that's how we feel. So Jesus was absent, and really the problem was that because Jesus was absent physically, the disciples, it's almost like they forgot what they were supposed to do. They forgot how they were supposed to handle this situation. It flew out of their mind, and, and here they were left with, a, with this confrontation. They didn't know what to do, and they didn't see it with the eyes of faith. They tried to handle it a different way, and it resulted in failure. One thing about faith that we learn is that faith gives us the ability to see things as they truly are and not just with the physical eyes. According to the promises of God, that's how we see. So we, we see situations and we say, okay, I see what it looks like, but I know what God has said. I mentioned uh, earlier in the meeting, I think it was on Sunday, about you know, there's a lot of dilemmas right now concerning, for instance, missions. How are we going to do missions? There's a lot of obstacles. There's, uh, for instance, there's countries where you can't even travel there right now. There's travel restrictions. There's a lot of things that are going on, a lot of concern about vaccines and all this sort of thing. And, you know, what is, what is going to be the requirement to get into countries? And you can see that there's a, a, a growing restriction, especially of missionaries and of missionary visas. I told our church, I said, I don't know how all this is going to end up, but I do know this, I know what God has said. So he said that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're still here. He hasn't rescinded the Great Commission, so I don't know how it's going to work out, but somehow God is going to make a way for us to be able to go to all the world and preach the gospel. It may look different than what it was before COVID. It, it may requires some creativity and some changing uh, of our methodology of getting into countries. But we know this, God hasn't changed his will for us. See, that's the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith see things as God has stated instead of, well, look, it's just impossible. It's just hard. It, it can't be done. Now, in this case, the failure of these disciples 
the situation that was confronting them was quite severe. There was a very serious spiritual problem that had been presented to them in the life of this boy. In verse 15, the dad describes the situation to Jesus in asking for help, and he says that he needs the Lord to have mercy on his son, and he described his son as a lunatic. And I know some of you probably would like to call your son a lunatic, but in this case, this was, uh, this was a... This is a strong word, but it is properly applied in this situation. This is not sarcasm. This is not, this is not exaggeration. This boy was out of his mind, and he was so much out of his mind, and he was so vexed that he would try to bring damage or hurt to himself, and, and we know that he was demon-possessed. So this is, a, this is a very serious problem, a very severe problem. And the disciples were confronted with this problem, and, and frankly, they didn't know what to do, as many of us would also be quite perplexed about a situation like this. Well, what do you want me to do about it? How should I handle that? And the disciples weren't exactly sure what to do. And what I want to say about this is that there's many times in our life that we have a tendency to think You know, there are certain difficulties, trials, decisions, situations of life that we honestly really feel like, I could handle that. That's within my tolerance level. I can can figure this situation out. And, And it's not that we don't want the Lord to be involved in our life. It's just that we don't usually think about including the Lord in those situations because we feel like, you know, this is something that I can, this is something that I can handle. This is something that, you know, I I don't really need the Lord to intervene in this situation. There are other things, however, that are beyond what we would call the garden variety of trials. They're more severe, and they're the kind of trials that the moment they come into our life, we wave the white flag of surrender and say, Lord, I need your help. This is beyond what I can handle. Now, why is it that it has to take a strong trial for us to be calling to the Lord, but in those average, everyday decisions and trials of our faith, we sometimes want to say, you know, I could do it. I can handle it. Um, You know, we're raising six children, four of whom are boys. Pray for me. Um, Boys, boys are interesting. As they, they develop independence, and that's a good thing, but they really, my boys at least, don't like to be helped. And I have one son in particular, and they're all a little bit this way, but I have one son in particular who has a very strong bent in this direction. If I say to him, Caleb, let me help you with that, he's liable to hurry and get it away from me so that he can prove that he can do it himself. And in the process, usually make a mess of something. If you know what I'm saying. Now, he's immature. He, he's going to be seven next week. And he's got a lot to learn. But you know, there's a lot of times when we act the same way with God. When God is offering to help us, 
but we kind of get in a hurry to, to, to almost prove, I can handle this. I got this. I don't, I don't need your help. And I kind of wonder if that was part of what the disciples were doing. I mean, Jesus was not that far away. This was a perplexing situation that they couldn't handle, but it seems like they were eager to kind of prove themselves. And, and if you look at the timeline, they had actually most likely by this point been able to do some miracles. Jesus had sent them out two by two. They had done some miracles. They had experienced the power of God. And, and maybe they started thinking, we could do this. We can handle this. But of course, they couldn't. You and I should always be depending on the Lord. Because when we depend upon ourselves, we're going to find that we get in over our head in a big hurry. We're going to get into situations that will be far beyond our ability to deal with. The problem in this passage is not really the severity of the trial or the difficulty of the situation. The problem is that the disciples evidently thought they could handle it themselves. The power was available to them from the Lord, but it wasn't until they failed that they really recognized, oh, we messed up. Have you ever messed up in your Christian life and, and, and kind of fallen flat on your face and then realized, oh, I was supposed to be trusting the Lord. I was supposed to be doing it God's way and I got busy doing it my way instead. Well, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, then I guarantee that's happened to you. Now, Jesus, in pinpointing the cause of their failure when they came to him later, and they wanted to know, I mean, we got to give them credit. They came to Jesus and they wanted to know, what did we do wrong? We, we thought we did everything. You know, we raised our hand the right way. We, we, did, we did it exactly like we saw you do it last time, and it didn't work. What happened? And Jesus said to them, the problem which I pointed out to you when we were reading through the text in verse 20, is because of your unbelief. Because even though you were trying to deal with the problem, you actually, in your heart, were not believing that God could or that would, that God would. There was a, there was a failure of faith. Unbelief is a common failure in the life of many Christians. In fact, it's a sin that we struggle with constantly. If you're honest about it, you could take every sin problem in your life and back it up to a root cause, and you'd find out that unbelief is right at the base of every sin. Because ultimately, sin is rebellion against what God has said, what God has declared to be truth, and the reason you rebel against God's truth and I rebel against God's truth is because I don't believe what God said. I believe I've got a better way. My perspective must be better than God's in this situation. And I wouldn't stand up in church and give that testimony and say, hey, I just want everybody to know that I'm pretty sure my perspective is better than God's in this situation. But there are many times that I live that way. That in my decisions, I demonstrate that I believe my way is better than God's way. Now, there is a man named Abram, and he's described in Romans 4 and verse 20 and 21 in this way, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, 
but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And there's a couple things about that passage in Romans 4.20 that I want to point out to you. First of all is that the importance of faith. We know that Abraham finally received the promise of God. A son was given to him and Sarah in their old age, and he rejoiced to see that son being born because he knew that was the fulfillment of God's promise. And praise the Lord for his faith. He's the father of faith. We look to faithful Abraham and we say, that is a man of faith. But you know, another thing that's encouraging to me about Romans 4, 20 and 21, because I've studied Abram's life, is that he wasn't perfect in his faith, but God still regarded him as a man of faith. There were times when he kind of looked at the situation and he had trouble believing the promise of God and he saw a different way maybe that he could help God. Have you ever been tempted to do that? Help God to answer his promise and he tried to help God out, made a mess out of it, but God didn't give up on him. God just kept working in Abram's life, and the time came where Abram really came to the place where he said, okay, look, I, I need to just trust the promise of God. That's the place where all of us need to be. Now, unbelief in the life of a believer, doesn't, that doesn't even sound like it should go together, does it? Unbelief in the life of a believer is a serious sin. It will lead us into serious other sin. And the reason is because unbelief cuts us off from the resources that God wants to offer to us. These resources are only available through faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. You will fail in your Christian life without faith. It is impossible to be a follower of Christ without faith. It is impossible to accomplish the will of God without faith. There's a failure of faith, and we all know what that's about. But also, not only do we need to consider the failure of faith, we need to consider the potential of faith. Because as we look at this situation that's described in Matthew 17... I want you to understand there never was any question about whether God had enough power to heal this boy and deliver him from this demon's power. There was no question. God was able. There was no sense in which God's hand was shortened that he could not save or that God was unable to work in this situation. It wasn't like, you know, well, uh, God wasn't really there and the power of God wasn't available until Jesus showed up. I believe the disciples had the capacity to deal with this if they had only approached it with faith. This is the potential of faith. Now, when you look at the passage in Matthew 17, something that's interesting that takes place early on in this encounter is that because of Jesus' disciples failing, it seems that this man and the people, the multitude that were gathered around, had seen the disciples' failure, and they had transferred that failure to Jesus. So as far as they were concerned, it was not just a failure of the disciples, but it was a failure of Jesus, because these were his disciples. And, and they're coming, now it's like they're appealing to the next higher level. Okay, they couldn't do anything, 
Can you do anything? And of course, Jesus can do something. He's going to deal with that. But, but what I want to point out to you is that when we fail in our faith, a lot of people who are looking on in the world who don't know the Lord see our failure of faith as failure on the part of God. They blame God. They, they attribute that to God. It's a bad testimony to God and, and to his power and who he is. This is why we have to be very careful about our life because, and you've heard it before, your life is the only Bible that some people are ever going to read. To them, they equate, because they know that you're a Christian, they equate what you do with what God would do. And I've even talked with people who've said to me, well, I, I knew some Christians, and you know, if that's the way that Christians act, if that's the way that God would want people to act, I don't even want to believe in God. And I, then I have to try to talk to those people and say, now listen, just because someone behaved a certain way doesn't mean that God condoned it or that God approved of it. So be careful of projecting your view of who God is and what he's like based on what you see in people who call themselves followers of God. But it is important for us to know, as disciples of Christ, people will identify our behavior as that which is God's behavior or that which God approves of. That's a heavy responsibility for us. There's also a great deal of potential in this, right? Because if we walk by faith, we have the opportunity to show the world this is what God is like. This is what God can do. This is how God can work. This is how God can answer prayer. Now, later, after this happened and the devil was cast out, it says in verse 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? So they, they really needed to know. They were embarrassed by their failure. And they came to Jesus privately for some answers about what had happened. What, what happened, Lord? We, don't, we thought we did everything right. We don't understand why things worked out the way that they did. Can you help us to understand this situation? They came to Jesus privately for some answers to the, their failure. And I want to instruct you and encourage you tonight that when you find yourself failing, when you find yourself not walking in faith, it is absolutely appropriate to come to the Lord and say, Lord, where did I go wrong? Why did I not walk in faith? What led me into this place? Why did this failure take place in my life? And, and let your life be an open book, because I believe that God will show you if you ask him. I believe he'll make it apparent to you so that you can make changes, so that you don't make that same mistake again. Now, Jesus in speaking to them, of course, identified that their unbelief was the problem. But then he also described for them the potential of faith. And in verse 20, he says, For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. So, you notice, first of all, in verse 20, there's a conditional statement again. Jesus used a lot of conditional statements with the disciples. I don't know if you've noticed that, but he said, if ye have faith. It's not a given that every disciple of Christ will have faith in every situation. Actually, 
there's a strong pull for us to walk by sight and not by faith. And so Jesus says to his disciples, if you have faith, see, the problem is they didn't have faith, but he said, if you have faith, then things will be different. There is a struggle that takes place in your life and mine surrounding this issue of faith. Am I going to believe God or not? And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's one of those things where sometimes it's so easy. You sit in a service and you hear the pastor preaching a message about faith and about believing God, and you say, amen, praise the Lord. That's what I believe. That's what, that's what I think too. And then you go out the back door and you go into your life and the next day you encounter a situation that is exactly what was spoken about, but it's a lot easier to say amen in the congregation when the preacher's preaching than it is when the decision is confronting you and you say, but if I do what God says, this isn't going to turn out too good. Do you know what I'm talking about? So this is why Jesus said, if ye have faith, because faith is really the crux of the matter. This is where we struggle in our Christian life. Am I going to believe God or am I going to believe myself? Am I going to believe what God has declared or am I going to believe that which I can see, which seems this is how it's going to work out? Who am I going to trust? So Jesus said, if ye have faith, and then he uses a comparison as a grain of mustard seed. A grain of mustard seed, it's a small uh, spice, that we use in our kitchen sometimes, and it's very small. It's, uh, you know, just about that big. In fact, um, <clears throat> I'm to that age now where if I held it up here, I might not be able to see it. It might be a blur. Um, I'm encountering that weird stage of my life where I almost need reading glasses, but not quite. And some of you have already gone before me on that, and and then there's people who say, just embrace it, just use the reading glasses. And I'm like, but I can't, I can't yet. It just is, it doesn't work yet. And I'm, I'm stuck in the in-between. So a grain of mustard seed is not very big. It's not something that you would, that you would identify as being significant. If I, if I took a grain of mustard seed and threw it at you, it wouldn't hurt. You probably wouldn't even see it to be able to flinch. It wouldn't, It wouldn't bother you. It wouldn't concern you. A grain of mustard seed is very small. Jesus is talking about faith in this way because he's giving us this this lesson, this instruction. We don't need heaping amounts of faith. We just need enough faith to hold on to what God has said. And honestly, there are times in our faith journey, in our walk with God, when it feels as if, The only thing we're doing is just kind of clinging to what God has said because we don't know what else to believe. We don't know where else to put our feet. And that's okay. If you have a grain of mustard seed, if you just have a little bit of faith, God can do a great deal with that. Some people talk in this way or think in this way, I just need to work up some more faith. I just need to work up a lot more faith. No, you don't really need to work up a lot more faith. You just need to believe what God has said. It's not, it's not that complicated. It's actually just a little, it's a little thing. It's, it's a little decision. It's a, it's a small matter, but to us, it feels like a great matter. The focus in verse 20 is not, and, and this is what I want you to come away with, it's not on our faith being big. The focus is on God's power being big. Our faith can be just 
a little thing, it can just, uh, in our mind, we're just barely believing God. But God is still able to work. His power is not diminished. So sometimes, I think, for instance, we read about people who seem to have so much faith, and we say, I just, I just need to be that kind of, I need to have a lot of faith. I'm trying to get a lot of faith. Well, just believe God in the things that you know right now today, and you might be surprised what God will do. Sometimes I think that I need a lot of faith, that, that idea is just an excuse to put off believing God. Because, we, well, you know, I'm just not one of those kind of people that has a lot of faith, so I, you know, I'm just not like, no, well, okay, neither am I. So let's believe God. Let's believe Him in the little situations of life and see what God will do. Now, he spoke about a mountain being removed, and I don't want you to get hung up on that. Um, Some people say that that was a common idiom in Jesus' day to describe an impossible situation, a mountain that needs to be moved. And And we use an idiom kind of like that, which actually comes from this passage. But the, the, the clear implication of what Jesus is saying, and he restates it right after this, is that there is absolutely nothing that is impossible to God. Nothing. So we might look at something and say, that is impossible. That's not going to happen. There's no way. And God says, why are you saying there's no way? I am the God who called everything into being. I am the God who holds the measure of the ocean in the palm of my hand. I am the God who spoke everything into existence. I am the God who said, let there be light. So why do you think that there is anything that is too hard for me? This is what Jesus is emphasizing. There is nothing that is too hard for God. And because there is nothing too hard for God, and because we are followers of Christ... There is nothing that we will ever face in the will of God that will be impossible to us. Nothing that God cannot deal with. Now, when you look at that phrase, nothing shall be impossible unto you, again, I think there are people who take this the wrong way and they they interpret this to mean, oh, well, if I follow Christ and if I have faith, there won't be any problems. There won't be any difficulties. No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that if you are in the will of God and you are following after Christ, He is going to meet your every need. There is going to be nothing that will prevent you from being able to do the will of God in your life if you will follow Him in faith. Of course we know from the Scriptures that we will face problems. That's why we need faith. Of course we know there will be times when we'll be disappointed That's because we don't always look at situations through the eyes of faith and we're anticipating something which God has not promised or God has not assured us of. So it's not that there won't be troubles or there won't be disappointments. Rather, it seems that that Jesus is communicating to his disciples, if you are following me, if you are doing the will of the Father, there is nothing that he will ask you to do that will be impossible to you. And that is exactly the case for us as believers. God does not give impossible commands. When he commands us to do something, he also gives us the resources to fulfill those commands. Now, I do understand that it's impossible to obey God in our own strength. But through faith, 
through the resources that God gives, through the ability that God provides, we most certainly can obey God. We can do what God has said to do. We could say that it was God's will for these disciples to have healed this young man of the demon that possessed him. We do believe that that was God's will. However, because of their lack of uh, faith, because of their unbelief, they found themselves quite unable to deal with this situation. They didn't have the resources because they were not taking the resources from God. And what Jesus was emphasizing to them was, you could have healed this young man, but you did not believe me. You did not believe God. Because of your lack of faith, that is why this happened. All right, so there's a failure of faith. There's the potential of faith. But finally, there's a source of faith. And Jesus puts his finger on the problem in verse 21 when he says, How be it, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. This kind, following in faith, requires fellowship with the Father. By the way, Jesus... Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration in prayer and fasting. The rest of the disciples could learn from Jesus' example. But let's not point the finger at the disciples and say they need to learn something. Let's point the finger at ourselves and say how often do we spend time in prayer and fasting bringing our petitions before the Lord expecting that God is going to answer How often do we approach him in faith? What Jesus is communicating in verse 21 is that our faith springs from the vitality of our walk with God. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. And I think sometimes people get this idea about verse 21. Oh, the way to do powerful things is by prayer and fasting. Okay, great. So I'm going to spend two hours in prayer and I'm going to be fasting for the next three days and then I'm expecting that God is going to give me what I want. No, you missed the point. You missed the point. See, the point is the power comes from God, not from me. Prayer and fasting is supposed to be an ordinary part of my Christian life, an ordinary part of my walk with God. But too often we reserve prayer and fasting for the really important things. You know, when we really get in a jam, okay, now I'm going to go to God in prayer. Now I'm going to fast. Now I'm going to come to his presence. No, that's how we should be living. That's how we should be walking. That is what indicates faith on our part. Because we're, we're putting our confidence in our walk with God, in our faith walk. You see, the truth is you don't trust someone that you don't know well. If you don't know someone well, you're skeptical of them. And you know, the truth is, there's many believers who are skeptical of God. They're skeptical that God has their best interest in mind. They're skeptical that God can handle the situations of their life. They're skeptical thinking that God is going to ruin their life if they give complete control to Him. The reason they're skeptical of Him is because they don't know Him well. Because they're not fellowshipping with Him. By the way, we know in Romans 10, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, You know, we fellowship with God in the Word, in prayer. Fasting is a part of this. Our walk with God is where faith comes from. 
the emphasis in verse 21, again, is not on our power of faith, but it is on the power of God to work if we will just trust him. Do you understand that God is wanting to show himself strong on the behalf of those who will trust him? That's what he's, that's what he's waiting for. He wants us to trust him. And if we do, he wants to bring his power to bear in our lives. Now, in order to trust God, you say, why does he talk about fasting? Well, I think one reason is because before we will grow in faith, we have to learn to deny ourselves. We're not very good at denying ourselves. And, and this, is, this is readily demonstrated when you think about how hard it is to miss meals. The average American, if you ask them to miss a day of eating, they would feel as if they are going through an incredible trial. As if their life is, I mean, that is really asking something for me to not eat for a whole day. And we've got all kinds of reasons why we can't do it. But you know, at the end of the day, what we find out about ourselves is that many times our flesh is in control, which is why we have such trouble exercising faith because we come up against a dilemma. We come up against a problem and our tendency immediately is to trust the flesh. And the flesh cries out and we pamper the flesh and we give in to the flesh and walking in faith always cuts against the grain of the flesh. So Jesus says fasting because I believe he knows that we need to learn to crucify our flesh. And fasting is a good way to crucify your flesh. It's a good way to remind your flesh that you belong to God. By the way, if you don't eat for a day, you're not going to die. You won't. You could go actually quite a bit longer than a day without having any sort of... Now, you know, of course, people have health situations and all that sort of thing, so we always have to put that disclaimer on it. But at the same time, let's understand that especially, and I think it's especially in our culture, food is nearly a god to us. It is so important to us. And I like food as much as the next guy. Listen, you've heard me talk about ice cream and all that. So I, I enjoy food. I enjoy eating. But at some point, we have to put our desires aside. And we have to put God above those desires. And we have to discipline our flesh. And I think that's what Jesus is communicating. That in order to grow in faith, we need to learn to deny ourselves. But prayer, the reason he says prayer is because in our, in our dilemmas, in our, in our trials, in those, in those faith challenges, we need to learn to bring our dilemmas to God. We have a serious problem in our generation, a serious problem. Now, I don't think it's new to our generation. It's just that we have different outlets for it. Today, the average person runs into a problem. The first thing that they do is Google it or post it on Facebook. And it's usually posted on Facebook as a prayer request. Please pray for me. I've got this problem in my life. But what they're really after 
And I am judging their intentions, but I'm afraid most of the time what they're really after is not people praying for them. It's people having sympathy on them or putting some hooks in the water to find out if there's someone who can fix their problem for them. But you know, as God's people, the first place that we should go before we tell anyone about a dilemma or a problem, the very first place we should go is to the throne of God. We ought to get on our face before God and say, God, here's my situation. Here's my decision that I've got to make. Here's the dilemma that I'm put in. What, what do you want me to do? How can I walk by faith in this situation? Even sometimes I feel like I, it's, a, it's something that I struggle with. Should I even really mention this for prayer to other brothers and sisters if I feel like I haven't spent time praying about it myself? If I haven't actually brought it to the Lord, is it hypocritical for me to say to other people, would you pray about this when I haven't prayed about it? I mean, what I'm saying when when I do that is that I trust other people more than I trust God. But if, if my faith is strong, then the very first place that I'm going to go is going to be to God. And, and brothers and sisters, do you believe that God answers prayer? He does. He does. He's a good God. And He delights to answer our prayers. He delights to work in our situations. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that if God answers my prayers, it's in spite of me, not because I'm a great prayer warrior, not because I'm some kind of a George Mueller or something like that. In fact, if I'm honest about it, one of the greatest struggles in my Christian life is in the discipline of prayer, disciplining myself to spend time in prayer like I ought to spend time in prayer is at times... It's like warfare against my flesh. So if you can identify with that, then understand, I think that is more the norm than the exception for believers. Fight on. Believe that God is going to work in your life. Because here's what we know about God. And we talked about this. We we said, um, was it Monday night? I think it was Monday night. I've kind of lost track. I don't even know what night it is. But we talked about how Jesus promised that the Comforter would come and that he and the Father would dwell with us. And we talked about how we would have the triune God dwelling with us, abiding with us, living inside of us. So there's a real relationship that happens between me and God when I'm a follower of Christ. We have a, we have a relationship, and that relationship works on the basis of prayer and the scriptures. The scriptures is how God speaks to me, and prayer is how I speak to him. So if you know anything about relationships, relationships are impossible without communication. You cannot have a good relationship without communication. I know, for instance, if a, if a couple comes to see me for marriage counseling, I know right out of the gate if they're having marriage problems, they're having communication problems. I know it without a doubt, because if they were communicating the right way, 
they would have already worked through their problem and they wouldn't be coming to see me. So I already know we're going to have to deal with communication. We're going to have to we're going to have to work on that. See, there's just things that happen. Now, if you're having trouble in your relationship with God, it's because there's communication problems. It's because you're not spending time with God the way that you ought. You're not hearing from him and you're not talking to him. You're not spending time in fellowship with him because when you do, you find that you're able to trust him. You're walking with him. Are you, are you with me? So now I want you to understand that God, thankfully, is merciful. And he's not sitting up in heaven saying, well, you know, I've noticed that you haven't prayed for the last three days, so I'm not listening today. That's not how God works. Praise God, he's merciful. And even if you have been neglectful in your prayer life, when you come to him, he says, this is my throne of grace. You have a free, you have free introduction. You can come into my presence and I'll work and I'll answer your prayer and I'll work on your behalf. This is the kind of God that we serve. He answers prayer. Now, a lot of times the ways that God answers prayer are very um, ordinary. They're normal. So ordinary and normal that we almost don't attribute them to God answering prayer, although he is. We often take these things for granted. There are other times when God answers prayer in ways that are quite astounding, and I'm convinced that he does it just to remind us, you kind of forgot about me, but I just want to remind you that I do answer prayer and that I do work. I'll give you an example. Years ago, my wife and I moved to Finland for six months. And we, we went to Finland to the capital city of Helsinki to work with a couple that had expressed a desire to see a church started in their area. And we'd had a um, you know, bit of a relationship with them. They had actually come to Lehigh Valley for a while and spent some time with us. And they really wanted someone to come and work with them. The purpose of us going was to work with them, disciple them, and to equip them with some tools so that they could begin reaching out to their neighbors, friends, family, and eventually that we might be able to see a, a church planted. And, and one of the things, frankly, that we were praying about while we were there was, would the Lord want us to stay and be church planting missionaries while we were there? All right. So we made a, a, a commitment to go for six months. Um, we, we initially said before we went that we would not need a car. And we talked about it with this couple. And in Europe, if you're familiar with this, um, public transportation is very accessible. It's very easy to catch buses, trains, subways, etc., to get anywhere that you need to go. We were going to be living right in the center of Helsinki. In fact, right next to the main train station, there was really no reason for us to have a car. A car was a big extra expense. We were only going to be there for a short time. So we got there. We'd made that agreement. We're not going to have a car. We, we had a place worked out where we were going to live and all that sort of stuff. We got there, and they picked us up at the airport. And on the way back to the apartment where we would be staying, um, they had brought two cars because we had two children and bags and stuff like that. And this was just when we had Margaret and Isaac. And on the way back, this, this brother looked over at me as he was driving, and he said, now this is the car that you'll be renting and driving while you're here for the next six months. And I said, well, I thought that we discussed this and that we felt that it was 
the Lord's will for us not to have a car, and we were going to use public transportation. He said, well, my wife and I have talked about it, and we've decided that it would be just too inconvenient for you not to have a car, and so we've worked everything out. This is, a, this is our son-in-law's car. It's his extra car. You can rent it from him for this much money, and everything is already set up, and you're just going to take this car. You can park it in the parking garage there at the apartment, and everything is good to go. And I said, well, not everything is good to go because I came convinced that it was God's will for us not to have a car. And he's like, well, you know, you could tell he was, he was not happy with my answer. And, and frankly, I was uncomfortable. I mean, we'd just gotten off an international flight with two kids. We were tired, and this was kind of sprung on me. It was, so I said, well, listen, um, let me pray about it, and let's talk about it. That was a Friday. I said, let's talk about it on Sunday. And, and he said, okay, that, that sounds like a good idea. So Sunday came. And the deal was that they lived outside of town. So they came to where we were at, and they were going to take us in the afternoon. We had a Bible study at our apartment in the morning. Then they were going to take us to their place in the afternoon. And he said, why don't you just drive the car and see what you think about it? And I said, oh, brother, you know, I really, I really haven't changed my mind. I just really believe that the Lord wants us not to have a car. And he said, well, just drive it and see what you think. It's a really nice car. And I said, okay, I'll drive it. I'm going somewhere with this. And I had prayed. I had asked the Lord to make it clear, make it plain to us what we need to do. So we left and I was driving and we were getting off the highway to turn onto the local road to go to their house. And I pulled up to an intersection and it was a standard transmission. And I pulled out, made a left onto the road, the local road, and as I went to shift into second, the car redlined. It was a diesel, and my foot wasn't on the gas. And I thought, now that's weird. And so I quickly put it in neutral and let it coast off to the side of the road. And now it's, you know, at 6,000 RPMs, it's pegged. My foot is off the gas. We're coasting off to the side. I got it pulled to a stop. I turned the key off and handed it to him, and the car kept running. And I'm just watching all this happen, and he's watching all this happen, and then smoke started coming out of the hood. And I said, brother, I think we better get our Bibles and get out of the car. So we got out of the car really fast, and we backed up, and we watched what was happening in case it was going to catch on fire or explode. And right there, as we were watching, the engine melted down right there in the road. And I turned and looked to him, and I said, well, we agreed to pray about this, and I think that God answered our prayer. Now, he still wasn't happy because that wasn't the answer. But you know what? I was happy because I knew in that situation that God answered my prayer. I knew that I had, I needed something clear. I needed something that would be, because otherwise he would have been mad at me from day one because I didn't do what he wanted to do and we would have had a problem. We came there to work with those people, but I knew I couldn't afford that car. I needed God to make something so clear and so plain and I asked him to help and guess what? He did. And I just stood back and, and you know, that was, that was like 15 years ago. 
but I still marvel at the way that God works when I just said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I need your help. Can you just make this really plain? And God said, no problem, son. I'll make this as clear as a bell. You won't have any doubt when it's over. Praise the Lord. But now, I don't want you to think that I'm some kind of a great prayer warrior because, as I already told you, prayer is something that I, I struggle with. It's hard, but God is merciful, and God will hear and answer your prayer when you come to Him. And so, as God's people, we must walk by faith. The, the walk of a disciple is a walk of faith. And tonight, I want you just to ask yourself the question. I want you to think about and reflect in your own life. How is your faith walk? Are you, are you resting on the strength of your own flesh? Or are you resting in Christ's power? Are you looking to Him for answers? Are you, are you clinging to the promises of God? Are you looking for His strength and His provision so that you can be the kind of disciple that God wants you to be? Or have you found that your sufficiency is enough? Because, brethren, if your sufficiency is enough, you're not far enough out on the limb. You're... You're just going through the motions of the Christian life if you can find that you can just easily handle everything in your own strength, power, and resources. You're not where God wants you to be. I guarantee you that if you are walking with Him, He is going to take you places where your resources will not be enough, where you are going to have to depend upon Him. Be a faithful Christian. Put your confidence in Him because being a disciple is a walk of faith.